If you need a turnkey professional development and team building experience for your company or community, LeaderCast Events is your answer. We provide the guidance, technology, and entertaining CEU-accredited content for you to stream an in-person or virtual event for your team. Welcome to the LeaderCast Podcast, a weekly deep dive into the stories that transformed our guests into leaders worth following. I'm your host, Joe Boyd. Welcome to the LeaderCast Podcast. Today's guest is Milan Mahadevan, the president and CEO of 8451 in Cincinnati, Ohio. We're gonna learn today about how he leads using the scientific method. We will hear about why he curses too much and how he's worked really hard to stop doing that. And you'll also hear about his favorite movie from high school, it might surprise you. Millen, what's up, how are you, man? Really great, Joe, thanks for the invitation today. You got it, thanks for having me. Hey, uh, before we get started, can you uh, explain what in the world you do and what your company does? Like I'm a third grader, <laughs> like wh what is 8451? What are you about? And we're gonna get into your story, but I just want folks to kind of know what you spend your day doing, what you're leading. No, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, we like to be a little bit mystical, a little bit uh, you know, secret, it, it attracts more people to us. But um, A51 is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Kroger Co. Uh, the Kroger company is the largest grocery store in America. And it's, I think, one of the oldest, over 140 years old. And so Kroger created uh, a subsidiary of its business uh, because it determined that the future of retail was about connecting with customers in the most effective manner. And to be able to do that at scale, it's through knowing them better. And they'd launched a loyalty card, which spits off all this great data about what people are purchasing. And they realized that you know, it can have intimate relationships at a store level between a checkout lane person and the customer, between you know, the lady running produce, the customer shopping it. But to do them at scale, it needed a secret weapon. And so it created A51 to really be its data science arm, to leverage the data of the organization, how customers interact with products, how they interact with stores. And we collect that data through the loyalty card, which is a consent-based you know, mechanic. Where people say, yes, I want value. I want you to give me relevant products. What products are on sale? What new items are coming out? How can I get the best deal on something? So customers opt into that. That gives us the opportunity to understand them. So what A51 really does is we see people in data. And what I mean by seeing people in data is you know, we see whether you're an early adopter, whether you want to be introduced to new products. We see whether you know you always buy on promotion. It's so you're looking for the right notifications on promotion. We see based on what you purchase, you're probably packing kids' lunches. How do we make that easier for you through yeah. the products we put on our shelves? So we're a data science company at heart that is really just leveraging that data to make more relevant recommendations to customers, whether those are prices, products on the shelf. We also work with the supply chain, so. This is what customers are going to need. We can forecast what they're going to need until we order the right amount, which also creates an economic model for Kroger, not just on top-line growth, but also the opportunity to be efficient with that top-line growth, not ordering too much, which flows into zero hunger, zero waste, which yeah. is part of our mission, is not just, yeah, we want to you know, help Kroger, they're a business, we also want to help society. So how do we connect people with food, but also, you know, save food for one of that way, yeah. ensure that we don't waste a lot, ensure we have the right products in the right place at affordable prices. Now that's, I would tell you, that's how we formed. But over time, 
we've we've become a bit more diverse as a business um, and we've started to leverage some of our data assets and our channels to really help other partners so think of that as cpg partners uh financial services partners be able to reach customers too um, so to be able to PG just in our in our in our back uh, back uh, backyard here in Cincinnati, enable them to reach their customers through Kroger's channels, and so we've had an opportunity to then create value for CPGs and create more value for Kroger, and create more value for customers again, uh, which makes us not only I would say an internal department of Kroger, but also a, a revenue generating department of Kroger through the work that we do with those CPGs. Yep, and it's hard, man. It's just. <laughs> Look at the data, try to make sense of it, try to see people in it, and then make recommendations of what those people should should see when they have stores on digital channels or through our communications. I hope that made it easy. I think well, all I know is like when I buy something at Kroger, I use my card and then I assume you immediately know what I bought. <laughs> and so, so I, I just not, <laughs> not me personally, but uh, no man, that that does make sense. And I, I know uh, most of the folks watching and listening to this are not going to be in your industry, though some of them are, and they already know you, I'm sure. Uh, but but the heart of what I want to talk about, I, I'm, thank you for that introduction. You, I know the company's great. We've worked closely with you for a long time. Uh, but I'm interested uh, in the sort of person and leader you are because I've got to see it firsthand, and it's it's fun. You're a great leader. Um, and I know you. it's a growing organization, right? So how many, how many uh, folks do you have working for you now? We're about almost 1,300. Yeah, so that's not nothing. So every day, uh, ultimately, you gotta you gotta figure out the data science part of it and everything else, but you gotta figure out the people part, you know, and and leading them. So if you could, we like to kind of uh, uh, you know the the hero's journey framework that we're super into. I know uh, we've talked about that with you before, but we do this podcast in the same thing. So uh, I just want to think of your life as like a story and how you started and. Uh, if you could, are, you're from the UK originally, is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, so when you were growing up back then, think of yourself as like a little kid, eight, nine, 10 year old milling, running around. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what, what sort of stories were you into? Like what cartoons or comic books or book series or heroes, um, what, what were those first adventure stories that kind of captured your imagination? Oh, wow, you're really taking me back. You're taking <laughs> me back, sir. Uh, well, there was the there was all the cartoon Transformers, you know, Spider Man, Thundercats, all on TV. But <laughs> what what really you know, you know pulled it pulled at me was Star Wars, Indiana Jones. And I'm gonna throw a really random one at you, which yeah. is romancing the stone. So I remember it distinctly. It was Michael Douglas. <laughs> I think it was Cal Kathleen Turner. Yeah. And I remember that one because, I don't know, I must have saw it at Christmas on TV. It was like the big Christmas movie. I remember thinking, this is the most amazing movie. And I think I actually, like, videotaped it. It was like a, you know, one of those VHS <laughs> videotapes. Our kids are like, why is that these days? And I used to watch it again and again. But it was it was really Star Wars. It was, it was my, has been, you know, it was my big love of a... Of, a, of an adventure story, which I've carried on even yeah. to this day. You know, I love Star Wars. My, my, my son now loves Star Wars. I've kind of you know, beaten that into him for want of a better word, is that love. But I remember Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and then a strange one for you, but romancing the story. I got uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail as uh, you all were importing comedy over here when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, and I watched, I had recorded that on PBS on a VHS tape. 
or I don't know if it's PBS, but some channel, and it wore it out. Like you couldn't even see it anymore because uh, I was I was a comedy nerd back then. But we share Star Wars in common, and those, you know, those George Lucas actually w- worked with Joseph Campbell, the guy that I'm way into about writing that original story and making sure it hit all these points so it it did captivate especially uh especially folks are kind of aged like that it was the perfect uh perfect thing um so do you remember what your early kind of ambitions were uh like that that as you started to get maybe a little older uh what did you hope to do with with your life or what did you imagine being as a grown-up Wow. Um, Joe, that's really sent me back. Joe, I think when I was very young, I just thought it would be cool to be a gardener. I thought it was cool. Like, I grew up in London, right? We we had a garden. It wasn't very big. Um, My dad used to like gardening. We had a lot of plants around our house that, you know, one of my jobs was to water them. One of my jobs was to take the trash out. One of my jobs was to, you know, cut the grass, which... To be frank, it wasn't a big deal because we didn't have very much grass back there, but you yeah. had these little jobs. And I just always thought, wow, it'd be awesome to just kind of be a gardener. Like, that could be my <laughs> job. Like, I'm already doing it. I seem pretty good at it. I get money for it. I remember distinctly because I, even to this day, you know, that influence of my dad having plants all around the house has stayed with me. Like, we have a ton of plants inside the house. But I'm just fortunate to now actually have a yard moving to America. Yeah. I think if I continued in London, I probably wouldn't have a yard of any description. And um, that, that's the most distinct thing I can remember wanting to be. But then as I grew through school, um, and the UK education system is different to the US education yeah. system. So when you go to college, you've, you've picked your degree, right? Basically, at 16, you have your, I, I assume it's the equivalent of a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. And then you do 16 to 18 is really what we call advanced level, where you pick you know five or six classes that you're going to take. And I was good at, math and physics and chemistry so guess what my a-levels were in math physics chemistry computer uh computer science and so then i was like i've got to go to college (laughs) so now you have to pick the degree you're going to do yeah and so i remember an advisor at my school saying you should do engineering and my dad actually was a pseudo engineer his degree was in engineering but he worked on you know oil rigs gas stations a lot of time away from home um and so I was like, yeah, I'll do engineering. So I have a degree in chemical engineering. And I'll, I'll tell you the reason I'll tell you the story is, you know, year one, I went to college. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, there was no chemistry. People were like, oh, chemical engineering, you know, chemistry. It's all math and it's all physics. Yeah. And after my first year, I was like, holy crap, I don't <laughs> want to do this. Yeah. I remember my dad saying, well, it's all about applied math, right? It's different. It's not just math, it's applied math. So go do an internship. So I did an internship. Uh, for a petrochemical company to be named later, a large uh, you know, gas company, I think you call them in America. And oh my God, the job is boring. Yeah. I was like, I got to do a second year of this because like you've picked your degree, mm-hmm. got to get it at this point and change. And in my second year for my internship, I worked for an agricultural institute, which was uh, you know, trying to create forms of crop, but you need a lot of chemical engineering there. How are you going to do it? How are you going to flow things? I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is also really boring. <laughs> but in my third year, I did a I did a consult I worked for a consulting firm. Yeah. And I found that what they did was solve problems for people, not unlike uh, yourselves, uh, you know, business problems. They take things and they break them down to their constituent parts and try and put them back together. And that's when I realized 
what I've been doing in engineering was the same thing. Different domain, hmm. it was more about fluids and how you create things by putting two different chemicals together or how you, you flow things through pipes. But it was the same thing. How do you break stuff down to its individual elements and then solve for them and put together what that solution is over top of it, understand the drivers of it. And I, I realized that the reason I liked engineering, I like the concepts of math and even physics were all about first principles, how you break things down. I didn't like where it was deployed. Like I could basically work for a, a petrochemical company, a pharmaceutical company, or some kind of agricultural company. That's yeah. where most chemical engineers end up, is in one of those fields, or a CPG making something. I was like, I actually like the business side of it. So I had the unique opportunity um, to get a chemical engineering degree, but really then leverage it in a completely different world. And yeah. so I looked around, having done my internship at consulting firm, and said, hey, where do I want to go? And I... I found a little company in the UK called Dunhumby, um, and they were 70, 80 people. But they had something super unique, not unlike 8451. They were all about the data. They were all about whether it was seeing people, optimizing things. And they were working with some of the biggest both grocery stores, but also you know, they worked for a utility company. They worked for Virgin Atlantic when I worked for them. They worked for Tesco, which is a massive grocery store there. And so it was applying you know, data and science, but also solving real business problems. So it took me a while to really figure out what I wanted to do. And some of it was just through, to be frank, doing stuff, yeah. exploring it, yeah. until you realize, like, this is where you get your energy from. This is what uh, this is what intrigues me, what piques my curiosity, as opposed to just, you know, trying to make it work. Because actually just keep doing different things until something makes you wake up in the morning and say, I really like what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the key. I think, uh, I'm, I'm in life stage of, I've got, uh, a 23 year old, 21 year old sons and my 21 year old is a senior in, in college and he knows everything he doesn't want to do, but he doesn't know what he wants to do yet. So, uh, I just call it, you just got to try stuff, man. Just like, don't yeah. do nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the walk, yeah. uh, the journey will unfold, you know? Um, and I saw that with my older son for sure. And me, I, I have a, I have a theology and a, and a comedy degree. So here I am, you know, you kind of work it yeah. out as you go. Right. Yeah. Um, so life, life is just a series of tests and learns. Yeah. You test, you learn every single time. It's just course correcting, course correcting, course correcting. There's no perfect answer. Your, your life is accumulation of your experiences. And so keep experiencing stuff and you accumulate life. Yeah. I mean, that's keep trying stuff. So tell, tell your 21 year old, yeah, it's good that you've learned. What's that? The old saying that the guy that created the light bulb, or one of the people that claimed to create the light bulb, said, "I didn't fail a thousand times. Um, I've I figured out a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. <laughs> right. All it takes is the one when you did figure it out. It's just you have all these experiences. You find out what you don't like, uh, all on the path to finding out what you do like. I wonder if like the stakes are higher for you now than when you were seventeen, right? Like the stakes of making a mistake basically like not finding out do you do you still have that in your leadership style that sometimes we just got to try things and see if it works uh is that still part of who you are i like to think so but to your point the stakes are higher yeah. so there's a difference in you know how big how big those decisions are yeah. change radically for me personally i'm still about like i'm still going to go try and do different things put yourself out there uh, try and do different things to learn. And for the business, I want to push us to do it too. But the scale 
you know, those things don't necessarily scale with the size of our business as it grows. You don't you know, say, hey, I'm going to take you know, half the company and go do this other random thing in there, um, unless you have some some evidence that points there. But the idea of small tester learns that become bigger and bigger and bigger and a rolling stone is definitely uh, still in our DNA. I think one of the things I think about more than I've ever thought about before in this last, you know, certainly definitely this last two and a half years is not just thinking about, you know, the business and the you know, thousand people uh, that, you know, I can call team members, but it's also the 4,000 people that, you know, depend on those 1,000 people. Yeah. And then yeah, the 500,000 people that work at Kroger and then the 60 million customers that Kroger serves. You start realizing as you, as you grow, you start realizing the impact uh, that you make is actually vast. It has an ability to touch you know, 60 million households yeah. across the United States from one little decision. And so that, that's definitely something that you know, I never thought about when I was you know, 21. Right. <laughs> I never thought I'd be you know, in that situation. And I'll be honest, the, the pandemic really kind of changed. Um, I thought about people and going beyond just the people that are my teammates. I never really realized how big those decisions were until we started getting into the pandemic. And I was like, hey, we got to start making decisions on how we look after our team. Yeah, it's not just our team because their officers are now their homes, and so their teammates are actually sitting right next to them. Their teammates are on the couch right next to them because that's their family. Right. So it just changes. It, it makes it really come to the top of your head when you start living through things like that. Do you do you think if the uh, if the younger Millen could see you uh, now, uh, what would what would you think that that you would be proud of, and what what would what would shock them <laughs> about where you are? Uh, I think the number one thing that would shock them is, you know, I'm in America and I have not back in London. I, yeah. I moved here in 2003 and I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't, I'm not sure I, whether I really wanted to come or not, but I remember distinctly talking to my father about it. And, you know, I was 23 years old and, uh, uh, he he said to me like I don't know why you wouldn't go. Right, we started a company that was you know, twelve people that all moved from the UK yeah. to start a company in, in Cincinnati, and he's like, you're one of twelve people. The US is the biggest retail market in the world. It's like a startup in a huge country. You know, be there two years, three years, and come home and you can write any job you want. So I was like, yeah, that's good advice, man. Yeah. <laughs> I should I should lead into that. It's another experience, something yeah. different. Uh, let me go do this. We work in, in the United States. But I never thought I'd be here. You know, we're talking about you know, almost coming up to 20 years later. Coming yeah. up to 20 years later. And I, I could not have possibly imagined that I would have still been here. Um, and so I think my younger self would be like, what the hell are you doing? Get, get back on a, <laughs> get, get back on your plane and, and go home. Um, I think on the, on the flip side, I think my younger self would be like, you know, wow, um, you know, you've really taken what was you know, just raw ingredients, um, you know, skills, capabilities, curiosity, and you've really shaped it and molded it into something that, you know, is powerful. Mm -hmm. I hope that's what my younger self would say. Yeah. Um, and you've done it the right way, not the wrong way. You've never lost, you know, sight of, you know, doing you. I tell people all the time, like, the only, the only thing you can do is, is be you because everyone else is taken. And I just want to be able to go to bed at night saying, I said what I believed or what I thought was right in that situation. The moment you find yourself not, not feeling like you can do you, for want of a bad word, 
And so we'll try to just get out of that situation. And that's my opinion. Yeah. No one should listen to me, but um, that's probably the worst thing you can do is to start is to start not being you and stop being true to yourself. Do you do you appreciate that for the folks that work for you? Because I know some there's a leadership style that doesn't like that as much. You know what I mean? But you, you feel like you handle people disagreeing with you and and all that kind of yeah. Makes you makes you better. If everyone says says the right thing and agrees with you, then the emperor's got no clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell people all the time, like, you know, magic doesn't happen at the top of organizations. It doesn't happen. Magic happens at the edge. Magic happens with your customers, with your clients. Kroger's magic happens at a store in the produce aisle. Our magic happens when people interact with our tools, when we deliver a price that gets accepted by a merchant. So the magic happens at the edge. It happens with the teams on the ground. The best we could do is generally say we're going north and get barriers out of the way. Mm. You got to be look at the top of that. You know those ships. They have those little I don't know eagles' nests, birds' nests yeah. at the top there. Looking out on the horizon, said there's an iceberg. Let's start to steer to the right. Right. It's about thinking. The decisions I make today are about three years from now. They're not about next week, next month. I can't influence that from where I sit in the business. I want to keep the, the sea open for my team because yeah. they're the ones that make it happen every single day. And so when people say like, oh, you know, do you really want to hear from you? That person, they're, they're, they're challenging. I'm like, yeah, yeah. We, we should listen to the most opposing voice that we can find because diversity of ideas, diversity of opinion, it breeds better. It just breeds things better. Yeah. And if you're not hearing someone disagreeing with you, then you have a problem with your yeah. leadership team. You have a problem with who you've built in your business and you will fail eventually. That'll be today, that'll be tomorrow, but you will fail. I want the voice that says, I'll agree. I think we should go this way. At the end of the day, someone's got to make a decision. Yeah. If it's my decision, I'm going to make my decision, but I want all the inputs in the world. I think the second thing you have to be wary of is sticking to is holding on to your decision too long. Yeah. What I always tell people is your best competitive advantage is actually speed. Get input, make a decision. And if it was wrong, which you will discover because you're doing a test and learn, every decision is just a test and learn. If you're wrong, unmake the decision. But the best way to get moving forward is speed. Yeah. Right. Make a decision, take one step forward. If it doesn't work, make a decision quickly, take one step back, take a step forward in another direction. Um, I think too many people want to analyze every point of view uh, in the situation versus actually treat it like a test and learn. What's the the quickest, cheapest way I can figure out if we're going in the right direction? Take that step forward. That's great, man. I, I love how like the science, your science mind works for leadership. You know, it's very much kind of the scientific method, right? You have a hypothesis, you try it and do it quick. And if it works, you double down. <laughs> and if it doesn't, you don't. Empower yourself and your team to tackle some of the most difficult leadership challenges and grow professionally with LeaderCast Now. The LeaderCast Now app and online platform provide you access to more than 1,000 video lessons to help you navigate issues like change management, remote working guidelines, emotional intelligence, workplace conflict, negotiating, and more. Visit LeaderCastNow.com for more info. I, I will say this, like I, I get to interview a ton of really fascinating folks on this, but very seldom have I interviewed someone where I've actually, I've been in a meet, I've been in several meetings with you, with your, with folks from your leadership team on that meeting. I noticed that you never talk till the end. 
I don't know if that's conscious or not. I've always wanted to ask you that. And is that part of kind of, I assume maybe you think if you start saying things, people might just think that's the end of it. Is Are you doing that on purpose when you're in meetings with folks to kind of save your opinion till the end? Uh, yes, I'd say it's definitely a, a, an intentional decision. I'm also very transparent with the leadership team, which is I want you all to weigh in. At yeah. the end of the day, if we're in a leadership team setting, there are a lot of informs that have to happen, so we're all in the loop. But generally, the reason we're all together is there's some decision needs to get made. And you know, everyone's going to have an opinion on that. And at the end of the day, someone has to say yay or nay right. or you know, left or right. And so while I don't, I think your point on, I don't want to poison the well by saying, yeah. hey, I'm thinking this, and then everyone leads in. I think we've got you know, a strong enough leadership team that, even if I said, I think we're doing this, which I know we have, because even when I've made right. a decision, like three of them will come back and be like, oh, I want to make my case again. I'm yeah. like, feel free. But it is, it's uh, partly because I want the diversity of thought in the room and I want everyone to weigh in because weigh-in becomes buy-in. People want to hmm. be heard and you have to give everyone the opportunity to be heard um, to get their point out. And I will tell you, like, I've got into things thinking, oh, I'm leading this way based on what I know. And through that dialogue, I thought, ah, oh, sure, those were all great points. I'm leading completely the other way now. Yeah, yeah. And I sometimes think if you go into something with your preconceived notion, when I, not, don't get me wrong, I never know the full story about anything, right? There are plenty <laughs> of people that yeah. are figuring stuff out much smarter than me, and they're just bringing it up at the end of the day and say, hey, look, here's, here's all the pros, here's all the cons, and other people are weighing in. And you have to listen, and you have to you know, take a rational point of view. Maybe it's sometimes logical, but maybe it's sometimes emotional, and make a decision. So, yeah, there's an intentionality there. The leadership team knows, like, hey, guys, like, share your point of view. There's nothing that is – if you create an environment where people don't feel like they can say their truth, you, you're going to end up having – those people aren't going to be there because yeah. that's, not, that's not a feeling of an inclusive environment, an inclusive team. So, yeah, um, yeah intentionally, I want to get – all the points of view out so that I have a, the best view of the problem, the challenge or the ultimate decision that needs to be made. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that's, that's good stuff, man. Thanks for sharing that. So, uh, before we end our conversation, I want to get, uh, get back to your story just a bit. And as you know, every good story, uh, has, has a dragon that appears, uh, that is often in the form of like, a personal failure or, or personal pain that isn't your fault, but something usually something rather devastating happens to a person and it causes them to rise up or to change and to, to really, uh, become kind of, you know, in story language, what they were destined to be, um, for you personally, or, or for the company, either one, whatever you're most comfortable with, do you, is there something that comes to mind pretty quickly when you think of a season that was that was hard, that was your your dragon to overcome to get where you are? Oh, so many, so many, you know, so many. Because I sometimes think that you know, many of the times I'm in the position I'm in is because I've made every mistake there is, and at some point someone just went, "Hey, you, you've done all the stuff we should never do again. Why don't you lead us and <laughs> tell us all the stuff that we shouldn't do again?" And but there are a few. I tell, tell you one. You know, when I was younger, um, you know, I grew up in a certain you know, part of London and grew up at, you know, in a certain way that probably isn't you know, today. Um, oh, I, I think over on this interview, I've sworn a little bit. Yeah. I mean, when I was like 16, 17, 18, even at, even at university, every other word was a swear word. If you ever, 
if you ever go to London, you'll you know, walk around some parts of London, you hear everyone swears like literally every other word. Yeah. And so as I as I grew up, you know, I probably was a bit more aggressive than I needed to be, uh-huh. probably in a language <laughs> that was was more colourful. And then when I went to university, and then going into the professional world, you start to kind of realise there's things that you probably need to need to ratchet your back on. Uh, but I remember coming to America. And realizing how wide that divide is, right? Like two countries divided by one language, um, like it's a very big divide on what professionalism is in in uh, in the UK versus what it is in the US in terms of language. Um, and you know, it took a while, and it was it was hard because it was like culture shock. And I don't just mean the language; I mean so many things. And it's it's Cincinnati, it's not New York, but it's still massively different. Yeah. And, you know, language was actually one of the things that was probably the hardest for me to like adjust tone, adjust, you know, language choice. And there was like 12 of us that moved from England. So think about it this way, like 12 of us <laughs> to form the business that were happy enough swearing to each other. But as you grew, yeah. you suddenly realize like, no, there's, there's some different stuff that we've got to, we've got to do here because that's, that is acclimatizing that situation. So, you know, and it, I mean, for many of your listeners, it might feel like, oh, what the, what the hell, man? You, <laughs> you can't be a leader doing that stuff. But the reason I share it with you is, you know, change is not, it's not big things. Failure is not big things. And, you know, the pain that becomes your fuel doesn't need to be big things. It's little things too. It's, it is, you know, the change in how you have to talk. It's, um, you know, just to get your point across, to be, you know, be in the right conversation. Uh, it is, you know, the cultural difference. I mean, I grew up in a place that was pretty, 40% people of color. Mm-hmm. And I moved to Cincinnati and I was like, wow, there's no one of color here. But there is. Just where do I go to yeah. find that color? Right. Um, and it just was huge culture shocks, huge changes that, you know, what I, what I said earlier, you know, I never would have imagined I'd be here for as long as I, I had been here. Um, I did get through it. But like that first year was just painful because of all the changes. The language was one. I remember so much because it was such a big shock yeah. to my system and so many other people. Uh, just words, not even swear words, just normal words that we would use, you know, boot instead of trunk or yeah. you know, these just like simple things that people are like, yeah. And you couple that with not having the food that, you know, you grew up with. Mm. You couple that with completely different sports constructs. You couple that with none of my friends were here. Everyone I knew the first year was people I worked with, not people I knew who right. I worked with. And so, you know, I don't know why I describe it as failure, but pain that you had to loneliness, fuel right? that you had to go through, yeah. loneliness yeah. Um, that you had to go through. Then, you know, there are business-related things that are just, you know, we, I, I've done plenty of stuff where, you know, at one point I concatenated. We were tiny, uh, and I was, a, I was you know, a data scientist when I was younger, and I, I also ran all of our data solutions at one point because we were tiny as a business. And I managed to merge two things together and concatenate, merge a field together at it. And I couldn't reverse it. I couldn't reverse it. And basically, the business couldn't do anything for like a week. Oh, no. <laughs> and the lesson I learned from that is like, hey, test and learn what you're doing. <laughs> or, you know, create a test environment. Was have someone else QA your work, right? Check it. Yeah. Um, but I tell you, I mean, it burnt me up for a year two years yeah. that like I could do something so stupid I didn't think about it and uh and it it was it was not it was not super duper fun to go through it but at the same time I'll tell you this 
you talk about the hero's journey and mentors around you, it's the people that lift you up. Yeah. Oh, don't, 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 not the people say, don't worry about it. It's the people say, yeah, you really messed that one up. But you know what? We've all done it. I will get through it. And here's how we're going to get through it together. Yeah. The people that had the belief. I think you, know, you talk about the sword in the hero's journey, kind of welding the sword. Yeah. And so I was thinking about it. You know, as I was probably sitting here thinking you'd use the hero's journey. I was like, what's the sword? And I was like, all this business stuff went through my head. Sword's the data that we have. Yeah, yeah. The sword is you know, this, that, the other. Actually, the sword, you know, one of my early leaders gave me was actually the sword of belief. They just believed in me. Enough to say, you should move to America with us. Enough to say, you know, yeah, you really did mess that one up, but we're going to be fine and you're going to be fine yeah. through it. Yeah. Um, and that belief, that generosity of like trust is the, is the most important sword. And that's why I give trust in every opportunity I can is you have to believe in people. Like, I don't believe anyone wants to do the wrong thing. If I did, I would. I wouldn't be able to run a business in any fashion. So you've got to give trust to everyone uh, from the off. Not just earning it, but you have to assume they give it to them because people can do amazing things when they're given a little bit of direction and some autonomy and some belief in themselves. Yeah. Talking like a Jedi master, man. That's where (laughs) it's at. (laughs) Yeah. You remind me of uh, your father, right? That that, uh, um, seeing that in people is huge. Man, this has been awesome. I would try to conclude with like a serious question and then a, a ridiculous one. So we'll, we'll, we'll start with the serious one. Uh, I think a lot of us normal non-data people get freaked out by all of it and wonder where the world's going and AI. And we're doing a, our, our event next year is called Human Intelligence for LeaderCast. And we're just talking about how, you know, AI can be good or bad, but we, we're humans first. We have to keep the human spirit alive. I know Kroger's feeding the human spirit was kind of the, I don't know if it still is like a thing, but that was like the original kind of mission statement. Right. But I wonder as you, as someone who's like in the, in the middle of it, um, what do you think, uh, what's the hope for how we as a human race can use all the technology around us and, and what, what would your warning be to, to folks? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, the space is uh, just crazy, what people can do with machines, uh, what you can teach a machine to do, can write a story, uh, can, can draw pictures, can create you know, graphics. Um, but it does all that off the back of you know, experiences it's learned. And so the people that are you know, developing and teaching you know, AIs, it's all about the use cases and what, what they're teaching those AIs to be yeah. able to do. Because they're similar to any any child, everything becomes a learned experience. And so we as, as human beings need to keep remembering like we're there for each other and these machines, these artificial intelligences, if we're able to get that far down the line, which is still you know, a way off for us in most part, um, you know, what are we teaching them? What experiences are we creating for them? I think ethics, right? You have a, you have a degree in theology, I think you said earlier. Right, yeah. right? Ethics, theology, what are we actually teaching? And, um, you know, I've never done a class in ethics, but I kind of want to because yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of things that I think are really important you yeah. know, in this space and beyond this space. I don't want to do the degree in uh, unless they're ethics, you know, because I work at a data company. I just think it's it's really important for us all to get get really aligned to to that, and no matter what field uh, that we're working to do the right thing. So, you know, where where is the, the hope? Is you know, the hope is in 
that every every single one of us are in um, are in it for the right thing, are doing the right thing as we're teaching these AIs to do things. Um, I actually view a lot of you know what we do as how do we free up humans to do what only humans can do? Hmm. People talk about artificial intelligence, like you know, it's this thing that's going to run around making every decision ever. Most of what people describe as AI today is it recognizes something and is able to do something. Uh, it recognizes you know a picture of a cat and is able to execute something against it. It's able yeah. to take a take an input and say, hey, I've seen these inputs before. Let me draw a picture based on this myriad of experiences and data that I've been given. Um, and so when we start talking about leveraging you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence, actually it's about taking the things that that are time consuming for humans and enabling your machines to do them because what machines can't do is make bets. It can't take hunches. It's not as creative. Like yeah. it's going to use things and be creative with them, but it's not going to create brand new, never seen before type stuff. And don't be wrong, it will put lots of things together, but there's something unique about humans, uh, empathy, understanding, curiosity. And I'm sure one day, We'll be able to get machines to that that level. Hopefully not in my day, but someday yeah. <laughs> we'll get machines to that, to that level. But right now, a lot of it for us is when we're writing algorithms to do pricing, it's really to support our category managers, our store operators, with things that are incredibly time-consuming don't have a payoff. The payoff comes from them saying, yeah, these prices look right, except for this one. I want to tweak this one and see what happens. Yeah, Because that becomes new data into the machine. It enables that category manager to work on things that you know are are different and more uplifting, uh, for want of a better word, than um, than what the machine can do in a much more efficient manner. So, um, so that that's where I think the hope is, is in the people treat, teaching and training AIs uh, to introduce ethics. And I think it's all about all of us um, doing what what you know, just simply the right things, the most ethical things, because the machines will learn from what they observe. Love it, man. Okay, last last question. Uh, you're going to take George Lucas and me to a pub in in London. Do you know where we're going? Yes. I'm just going to go with yes. It'll be something <laughs> down on the river. Uh, it's a little bit, a little bit older. So not a newer, flashier one. So we're not talking about like Richmond. We'll be, we'll be right. up on the East end, the river right. in the East end. Yeah. The reason I, I'm trying to think through which exact pub I take you to, but I was just thinking last time I was home, like three of them had shut. Yeah, COVID and all that probably. So right. COVID, but yeah, being somewhere on the river down in the East London. Somewhere lots of cursing, hopefully. <laughs> just for you. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'll let you go back, do your important work. Uh, thank you so much, uh, man. I really appreciate it. No, no, thank you at uh, any time. It was great to chat with you. All right, man. See you later. See you, bye. Leadership is a team sport, but team sports are hard. That's why our team is so passionate about helping companies and communities develop leaders and teams that trust each other to do the hard work together. One of the easiest ways to develop your teams and leaders is to stream a half-day or full-day LeaderCast event for your workplace or community. World-class content that is thought-provoking and activating. Visit us at leadercast.com to find out more.